Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19. This morning we're continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're finishing a series of studies that has been taking us through chapter 19 of Acts, where we've been looking at Paul's time of ministry in Ephesus. And in part three, our our main text is going to be Acts 19, verse 21, all the way through verse 1 of chapter 20. I know it seems ambitious of me to take on that many verses, because you all know how long it could take me just to get through a few verses. But I think I've whittled my notes down enough that we won't be here all, all day. Although in a couple weeks or so, when we get into Acts chapter 20 and we see Paul preaching all night, I may have to use that in some way to reinforce my long-windedness. No. They're like, Jared, but a guy died. A kid died because Paul preached too long. Thankfully, there's no upper window here. We're all good. We're safe. We're fine. Uh, But... Let's uh, Before we dig in, just to kind of consider the, the very kind of closing part of our study from last week, and that was verse 20, you know, not only did the word of the Lord grow mightily and prevail over what we saw was the occult practices of the believers who had renounced and repented of those things that they had been involved with, they had burned all their magic books as a result of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit within them. We're also going to see in our study today how the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing over the rampant idolatry that was taking place in Ephesus 2. But as we're going to see, not without great opposition. And so let's begin by reading verses 21 and 22 of Acts 19. Luke recording for us, he says in verse 21, When these things were accomplished... Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So after that amazing work that God had done in the lives of those who came to faith in Jesus, who had repented of their occult practices publicly, both in confession and then in burning all their magical books in the sight of all. So this was a very public sort of thing. They weren't just kind of, you know, oh gosh, I can't believe that we did that. And I, 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 I mean, I'm, I, I'm wanting to get rid of it, but like, I still want to kind of have a private, I don't want people to know how jacked up my life was before Jesus came into my life. No, it was in the sight of all. There's this public sort of bonfire that happens with upwards of six million dollars in modern sort of equation of these magical books that were brought and just laid before the Lord. We don't want these things anymore. They're not supposed to be part of our lives. God, we give them to you. We lay them down in your feet. We're, we're burning all of them. We don't want to just pass them off to somebody else like, well, I, I don't think I should have them, but maybe someone else would. No, they just, let's destroy these things. These are no good for anybody. After all of that, it seems Paul maybe began to sense that his time in Ephesus was coming to an end. And so he begins to plan, to purpose what he was going to do and, and where he was going to travel to next. Paul purposed 
in the Spirit, which to me means that as he sought the Lord in prayer, there was this sort of fixed determination that he was to do these things, that he was to make these plans. And as we saw in Paul's quick stop in Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, we know that Paul kept his plans with an open hand before the Lord, wanting God's will to be done. The very first time he comes to Ephesus, he's, he's making sure that they knew, I, I have these thoughts in my mind, I'm gonna, I want to come back to you, but God willing. It's whatever God wants. What, what's God's will? That's what he wanted for his life. The plan he had in his heart leaving after wanting to leave Ephesus would be to pass through Macedonia, northern Greece, where Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea were, and Achaia, southern and central Greece, where Corinth and Athens were, but then go to Jerusalem. Now, we know from Romans 15 that at least part of him wanting to go through Macedonia and Achaia was actually to gather financial gifts from the churches in those areas that he could then bring to the church in Jerusalem to help those believers who were living in poverty. He's seeing maybe some prosperity in the Grecian churches and he's going, look, God can use you guys to be a blessing because we're one body. We can come alongside one another. This isn't our money. This is the Lord's money. How might the Lord want to use these resources that he's blessed us with to be a blessing to those who don't have anything, who need something? And, and this is an interesting shift because it kind of further shows that as the gospel was going out from Jerusalem into other parts of the world as the center of sort of Christian life moved away from Jerusalem and into Antioch and then out into the outer parts of the earth, that the Jerusalem church, after suffering persecution, no doubt some of that was people uh, losing some of their livelihood, having a hard time maybe being able to keep their business because of sort of the persecutive sort of elements of what was happening there in the city of Jerusalem and in the region of Judea there in Israel. And Paul's going, look, like we can be a blessing. They blessed us. We can be a blessing to them. Now, after that, though, Paul makes very clear that his desire after Jerusalem was to see Rome. This isn't Paul going, I want to, you know, sightsee. I'm really excited to, you know, go see the Colosseum. Really excited to go eat some pizza. Really excited for all the pasta. You know, I'm really excited to spend some time just chilling with the Italians. No, like, Paul's desire was to see what God had already been doing there in Rome that there were already now believers there back. Remember, there had been a push of persecution that had come from the emperor at the time where the Jews were actually forced to leave Rome, but now they're beginning to move back in. The, the, the church is flourishing there in Rome. Paul's going, I want to go. I want to see what God's doing. I want to maybe be used by the Lord in some way in that region. And this is interesting, you know, there's no indicator that Paul had any idea of what, you know, 
that really meant for him at this point in time. But it's in Jerusalem that he's going to be arrested. And it's his arrest and the chain of events that are going to follow after that that's eventually going to bring him to Rome as a prisoner later in the book of Acts. But knowing some of the things Paul will say later once he starts to realize what awaited him in Jerusalem, even if he had known here that he's going to be arrested in Jerusalem and then travel to Rome in chains and even on his way to Rome be shipwrecked, there's, he's going to be bit on the hand by a viper. If he had, even if he had known that all of that was coming, knowing Paul's mentality... None of that would have deterred Paul because his life wasn't driven by a desire for self-preservation, but a desire for gospel proclamation that people would come to know Jesus. In fact, later we'll see in the book of Acts, there's going to be other believers that are telling him, Paul, don't go. Prophet comes and does this thing with the belt, binds himself such as the man that's going to Paul, this is going to happen to you. You're going to be bound. And he's just like, why are you weeping on me? Like, cut it out. Like, stop trying to keep me from going to Jerusalem. Like, God wants me to go. I don't care what awaits me. Paul just had this mindset of, it's just about Jesus. I don't care what happens to me. Like, I just want people to know Jesus Christ. But I, I just, as I considered that that you know knowing these things paul would still have this sort of determination he would still purpose in his spirit to do these things to go to these places you know it just made me think of you know what what molds and shapes my life my goals what molds and shapes your life your goals you know does does jesus his kingdom his gospel his his great commission play a deciding role in how we live in the decisions that we make, in how we spend our time, and in the plans that we make for our lives. And if not, why, why not? What does it mean for us to be disciples of Jesus? What does it mean to be those whose lives are truly submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? You know, I believe Paul purposed in the Spirit because his desire was to be led by the Holy Spirit. And in humility and dependency, he was submitted to whatever the Spirit of God wanted for his life. And with those plans in mind, Paul decides to send two of the guys who ministered to him, ministered alongside of him, Timothy and Erastus. He sends them into Macedonia ahead of him. But Paul actually continued to stay in Asia for a time even after this. In fact, from what Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, the total amount of time he ministered in Ephesus was actually three years. We also know that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians while in Ephesus, and it's possible that part of why he sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of him was to bring that letter to the church in Corinth. But now we're going to see that the repentance and revival that we read about in the closing part of our study last week did not prevent opposition and persecution and hostility from rising up in a big way. So let's continue on. We're going to read the beginning of this opposition in verses 23 through 27. 
starting in verse 23, it says, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So at the end of Paul's three years in Ephesus, where he'd been ministering, all after all the things we've just been reading about in verse 23, we're told that a great commotion, great disturbance, a great uproar regarding the way took place. And that, again, the way was a term used solely in the book of Acts to refer to Christianity and the Christian message, which is centered on the one who is alone exclusively the way, the truth, and the life, and that's Jesus Christ. But we learn, and what we learn is that the uproar wasn't because the Christians and their message were, were troublesome, it wasn't because they were hate-filled people, they were rebellious or contentious people who couldn't stand to be around the non-believing people of Ephesus, it wasn't because they were always speaking against the people and the city. Note, none of those things were true of the believers in Ephesus and definitely not true of the Apostle Paul. Instead, we learn that the uproar came about because of the economic and financial impact that resulted from people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, seeing the error of idol worship and then you know, no longer buying idols or participating in the false worship systems that used to be a major part of their lives before Christ saved them. See, the, the transformation of individual lives because of Jesus led to a noticeable decrease in the profit that had been coming to the idol makers and their industry. This commotion, this uprising started with a man named Demetrius, a, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, realizing that his and the other craftsmen idol-making trade was, was being affected as Paul preached about Jesus. Now, Demetrius' real concern, as we look at what he says, wasn't that people were going to stop coming to Diana's temple and, and that the world might stop worshiping her but that him and the other craftsmen would lose their financial prosperity. We're making money. And this guy, Paul, he's messing things up for us. You know, one way to really hurt someone in our day and age is to hurt him in the pocketbook. I mean, that really can really drive somebody crazy, really mess somebody up. Messing with my finances? Don't, don't, even, don't even go there. They were, 
you know, their, their concern was that they would lose that prosperity, their comfort, their excess. Worried that their trade was in danger of being discredited and criticized and, and held in low esteem by the people who used to admire them. They were the people who were supplying all the little idols for everybody. They had what everybody else wanted. In fact, Ephesus was a place where people would travel from all over to come and worship at the temple of Artemis. And they'd want to bring little trinkets home. That's the exact same thing that you and I do when we go to places. We may not, you know, hopefully we're not buying a, a shrine of something, but maybe we leave with a deck of cards that has like a picture of the place that we visited. Hawaii. Every time I play cards now, I'm looking at Hawaii. I'm looking at some mountain in some place. And, you know, we, we want to bring back some sort of a trinket to, to remember, not to worship, but just to remember. These people would buy these idols so that there was an ability for them. Well, I'm not there anymore, but I can set up my little shrine of Diana there in my living room. I can have my own little worship service right there. And now all of a sudden, people aren't buying the idols anymore like they once were. And these men are thinking, well, what do we do about this? Like, how do we fix this thing? How do we get people to be more idolatrous than they previously were? They used to be so easy to sell things to them, and they don't want my stuff anymore. What do we do? Well, Demetrius decides to paint Paul in a really bad light. Paints him as someone who's persuading and misleading people. Noting that Paul said, you know, they're not gods which are made with hands. But in saying that, Demetrius actually exposed his own foolishness in believing, whether he really believed that or not, that the things that they made were actually gods at all, and not just wood and stone and metal objects that couldn't speak or move or answer prayer or do anything because they were lifeless and deityless objects. You know, I think you and me, we can really easily go, well, that's so foolish. It's so foolish. I mean, you're setting up this little figure and you can't talk, can't move, can't answer your prayer, can't do anything. It doesn't breathe. And we could go, oh, of course, I would never. That's just so, that's just so dumb. Like, I would never do that. But we can so easily find ourselves letting the worship of our heart drift to other things lesser things than the Lord. Bowing down to things that in our hearts, we're not doing it physically. I'm not bowing down to my car or my computer or a relationship or my finances or my job or the success that I'm longing for. I'm not physically bowing down to those things, but in my heart, my affection for these things is, has been elevated to a, to a greater place than, than Jesus alone deserves 
in my life. And, and you and I can find ourselves in one way going, oh, that's so foolish, this idolatry over here, this, this very blatant idolatry. So, it's so foolish and, and lame, but then we're maybe finding ourselves allowing some idols in our own lives and we've kind of made excuses for why that thing's not one when it is. Years after this, the Apostle John in his very first letter, the very end, the very final verse, and he's writing from the city of Ephesus. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I don't think the Apostle John at that stayed in the life of the church now maybe 20 plus years removed from where we're reading here is just saying, hey, I'm, I'm hearing about believers allowing shrines back into their homes. And I think there's a deeper sort of idolatry that the apostle John was writing into that we can kind of fool ourselves into thinking, well, because I'm not doing that, because I'm not having the the blatant sort of figurine or shrines or whatever that, that I'm avoiding. That's not me. That's not, what I've, that's not what I'm doing with my life, Lord. I'm not an idolater. And yet seeing that we can give ourselves over in certain ways to prioritizing things in the worship life of each of our hearts, that if we were really real with ourselves, we would have to say, you know what? There, there's some stuff there that doesn't belong. You know, it's easier when it's the blatant stuff, when it's physical things. The magical books. I mean, that would, that's a, of course, I shouldn't have that. The shrine, of, of course, I shouldn't have that. But what about sin that we allow in our lives? What about other things that are, 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 are in the inner part of our lives that are not in the physical that we know deep down has a place that it shouldn't have, it shouldn't be there. important that we don't just look at this account and go wow like great that the lord dealt with the idolatry there glad i don't have to deal with that glad we don't really have that same sort of idolatry today and then miss the more subtle things the spiritual kinds of idolatry that we can allow into our lives and make make excuses for You know, I, I doubt, knowing some of the other examples of Paul's sermons, of things that he preached here in these different Gentile cities, that the false goddess Diana really held much of a focus in Paul's preaching at all. I doubt that was the focus of every sermon. Guys, let's talk about Diana for about half of this time, and then we'll talk about the Lord. Like, Paul was more concerned with and focused on exalting Jesus 
than he was in trying to put down any false god that the people might have found themselves believing in. Because of Paul's preaching, people in Ephesus and throughout Asia Minor were turning away from the worship of false gods to worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. And as Jesus was being magnified, the false gods were beginning to be despised, deemed of no importance. See, in Ephesus, for a long time, it was Diana's name that was magnified. Remember, this temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was amazing. Four times the Parthenon. 127 pillars that were about 60 feet tall. Upholding this structure. A supposed image that fell from heaven, which was probably just a meteorite that hit the earth that they thought was the image of Diana. Two hundred years spent trying to build this temple. Diana was magnified. But things began to shift as the name of the Lord Jesus and his gospel was being magnified, proclaimed in the city of Ephesus as as true worship began to take place towards the one true God as the power of Jesus touched and healed and delivered lives in this city. The gospel of Jesus was what was bringing about transformation in the city of Ephesus. Change that was taking place as individual lives were being radically impacted by the love and gospel of Jesus and that work spreading as those people told others about Jesus and and other people's lives were saved and transformed. A, A radical work of the Spirit of God through the gospel of the Son of God and the in the lives of people who were who are now being born again and and wanting to live lives that truly honored and represented Jesus. Real change was happening not because of reformation, but because of inward spiritual transformation. And this is the exact same way that Jesus is still wanting to work today. And for those who have lost hope that God can still do something here in our country, in our state, in this area specifically, or maybe for those who have lost perspective on why God has you here, or maybe for those who have lost passion for what Jesus is passionate about, and that's people. Because of politics and politicians and immorality and social instability and personal opinions and the list could go on, please let these reminders from God's word Realign your hope and your perspective and your passion today and in the coming days. Our God is able to do here in the East Bay what he did in Ephesus almost 2,000 years ago. Do we think things are actually worse today than they were in Paul's day? No. 
But it's got to start with individual believers who are being radically transformed by the gospel and grace and love of Jesus. What we see some believers trending towards is more of like, how do we reform? How do we try to make people more moral? How do we try to get the right people in office and get the right laws passed so that people are, have to do what's right, have to do things in, that look more like what would be in line with biblical values? And there's nothing wrong with trying to put legislature in place and get people in office who love the Lord and want to follow his word. Those are good things. But listen, if people's hearts are not being transformed by the Spirit of God, that reformation sort of thing is not going to last. Not only is it not going to last, it's not doing anything inwardly. You can change someone's outward behavior and that person is just as lost and still on the road leading to destruction as before when they were doing everything outwardly that you didn't want them to do. We have to get our minds in the right place. How is God going to move in our midst today? It's not any different than in Paul's day. Paul didn't go around and he's protesting in front of Demetrius' Demetrius's shop. He wasn't trying to get a petition signed to shut Demetrius down. He wasn't going before the city council and talking about how angry he was at these guys. He was just giving people the gospel of Jesus Christ so that their lives could be radically transformed. And those radically transformed people were wanting other people's lives to be radically transformed. So, well, I mean, Jesus saved me. He's forgiven me. He's cleansed me. He's done something in my life. He's, he's given me victory over things that I used to be in bondage to. And I want other people to know about this Jesus who did something in my life. And, and as that happened, the landscape of that whole area began to change. Again, not reformation, it was transformation. And that's the exact same way that Jesus is wanting to work here in our day. When our hope is in the political system implementing biblical values, our hopes are going to be dashed because our country is moving further away from biblical values every single day. Our hope then can't be in that. Our hope has to be in what Jesus can do in a person's life. And then in a city, and then in a state, and then in a country. Not because we're enacting all the right laws, but because Jesus is saving people's souls. That was an amen, I'm pretty sure, just now. Thank you, Dash. But listen, we've got to get on board with Jesus' commission. We've got to get our perspective and our hope and our passion in, in the right place. We get passionate about sometimes good things, but they're not the best things. There's all kinds of people that are passionate about politics these days, but politics is not going to save a person's souls. It's not. It doesn't matter what political party they belong to. 
If they don't know Jesus, they're going to spend eternity in hell. doesn't matter if they're a conservative or a liberal. It's Jesus. We've got to give people Jesus. Our, our lives have to be radically impacted by the love and gospel and grace of Jesus because, you know what? Let's just be honest. Sometimes there's not a whole lot of life to be seen in us. There's not a whole lot of attractiveness to Jesus to, that can be seen in us. But God can change that in us. Even if we found ourselves passionless, hopeless even, our perspective in the wrong things, the Lord can change that, but we've got to bring those things to him. We've got to ask him once again, Lord, as much as we might pray for revival to happen throughout our country and here in our state, revival always starts with one person. Just becoming completely surrendered and in awe to Jesus. We've got more than one person here. We've got a group of people. What could God do with us? What could God do through us? If our passion and excitement and, and the thing that we are most about with our lives was just Jesus Christ, That's what God was doing here in the city of Ephesus. This is, what, this is what was threatening Demetrius and these other craftsmen. Was that Jesus was being proclaimed. That Jesus was grabbing a hold of people's lives. But we're going to continue to see Demetrius' speech. How it's going to lead to a mob now being stirred up. We see this in verses 28 through 31. Now when they heard this, verse 28, they were full of wrath, cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's, traveling, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. The, the craftsmen who Demetrius had been speaking to were filled with wrath. They were furious after what Demetrius had shared with them. And they, they begin to cry out, great is Diana of the Ephesians, almost like a no, uh, no one speaks bad about my goddess kind of moment. Like, crazy, you know, they're just like going out with like this. This is like their battle cry as they're leaving their little like idol workers union convention that they had. They're shouting it as they leave, and clear from verse twenty nine, these craftsmen took to the streets with their shouting. Cause the whole city to be filled with confusion. People start freaking out, thinking something's wrong. Some danger is posed to Diana and her, and her temple. And, and because of the craftsmen, a, a couple of Paul's traveling companions were grabbed and taken to this theater, uh, which 
the ruins of this theater are still in existence today. It sat about 24,000 people. And had they found Paul, I don't doubt he would have been killed by this mob once they got to the theater, but instead they grabbed these other two guys who were from Macedonia, Paul's companions who traveled and ministered alongside of him, and they took them by force and subjected them to this mob frenzy and fury. And we find, though, in verses 30 and 31 that the mob didn't, didn't deter Paul, but that the huge gathering at the theater actually attracted Paul. Paul's like, oh, there's a huge mob. I want to go there. I want to go to the people. It's going to be great. All the disciples are like, no. No, Paul. You know they're mad because of you. Like, you're the reason that this whole thing got started. Don't go. They wouldn't allow him to go. Uh, Paul must have seen this gathering as a significant opportunity to preach the gospel. What? There's like upwards of 24,000 people. I can preach there. This is going to be great. Uh, but too dangerous likely would have been a deadly situation for him to put himself into. But though Paul wanted to go, again, the disciples wouldn't allow him. Even some unbelievers who Paul had befriended who were religious officials, that word actually being a, a term called the Asiarchs. These were officials in Asia who likely presided over the imperial worship in that area and helped put on religious festivals for the different gods. Imperial worship was big in this part of the uh, Roman Empire as well. Uh, these unbelievers, these men who, you know, were part of these other false religious systems actually looking out for Paul's safety and pleaded with him to not go into the theater. And Paul's friendship with these non-believing religious officials, for me, was significant as I read this. Uh, they, they didn't believe the same things, not at all. I mean, there would have been a huge difference here. Paul's preaching about Jesus. Yahweh is the one true God. They're not gods who are made with hands. None of those things are gods. And yet here's these officials of Asia who are, you know, high up in the imperial worship sort of system. They were the people who helped fund festivals for false gods. They couldn't have been any different in their beliefs. No doubt these men probably had much different lifestyle practices than Paul. Being in Ephesus where Diana, who was seen as a multi-breasted goddess, who was this fertility, sexual sort of goddess with an emphasis on occult practices and all the demonic activity that was going on, that these men were probably involved in all kinds of wacky things in their own lives personally. And Paul was a guy who lived his life wholly unto the Lord. So belief and practice-wise, I mean, these guys couldn't have been more on polar ends of the spectrum. And yet we're told that these 
Asiarchs were Paul's friend. They were his friend. Which for me means that Paul, who I have no doubts shared about Jesus with them, he told them about his stance regarding the false gods. They saw the kind of life that Paul lived. If they were friends of his, they saw that he wasn't doing what they did. That Paul must have treated them with great value and respect and kindness. Must have conducted himself with such humility and gentleness and agape love that that the doors of friendship and communication stayed open in spite of their differences. For me, this is significant. This is something to pause and reflect on and to pray through of, Lord, how, how do I befriend those who I don't see eye to eye with, who we couldn't be any different regarding our beliefs and our practices, but to be able to treat people in such a way where I'm not the one shutting the doors of communication, shutting the door on possibly sharing the gospel with these people because of my own offensiveness. You know, there's one thing to know that the gospel will offend. The gospel is a stumbling block, right? But nowhere do we see the Bible telling us that we should be the offensive ones because of how we approach people. Let the gospel offend. If it's going to offend, it's going to offend. Somebody is not willing to believe, they're not going to believe. But how often do we see Jesus just going up to people in the gospel accounts and just being all offensive? It's like being an irritant, being a turd to people. Jesus didn't do that. He was kind. He was compassionate. He saw people as sheep who didn't have a shepherd. I know that was a funny word to use there, but I call my dog a turd sometimes because he's kind of a jerk. But Jesus wasn't a jerk. He was kind. He was gentle. He was humble, even being God. And people were attracted to him. Even people who couldn't have been any more different than him. But I I think we can find ourselves as believers just wanting to stay to our Christian bubble. Surrounding ourselves with other people. They think exactly the way that we do. They look exactly the way that we do. They're they're doing the same exact things that I do. Because we feel like it's, it's just easier. It's less messy not to like talk through hard things. Not to have hard conversations. And yet that's exactly what the Lord calls us to as believers. How are we to be in the world but not of the world? I don't think that not being of the world means that we're to be detached from the people that Jesus is wanting us to reach with his love and his gospel. I think there's a lot that we can take away, even though there's not a lot said about this friendship, knowing who Paul was, knowing his approach to ministry, 
I think there's a lot for us to pray through in, in how we befriend for the sake of the gospel people who are completely different than us, lost people, lost people. God used both the disciples and the officials to keep Paul safe, but we continue to see this mob craziness in the following verses. Verse 32, we pick back up. It says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is like a European football uh, crowd, just like crying out loudly, goal for two hours. Uh, but they weren't saying goal. Uh, verse 35, when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there? who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. In verse 41, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The whole situation was so crazy and chaotic and confusing that most of them, as we see in verse 32, didn't even know why they had come together, and, and what was even happening. Like, they're just like, I don't know, I just showed up. People were shouting. Everybody was going there. I thought I should go too. I wanted to find out what was going on. And, and, and people are shouting one thing, and some are shouting another. I just get this, like, this mental image of people, like, crying out about something that had nothing to do with the gathering at all. Don't take away my pizza. And these other people are like, no, great is Diana. And they're like, wait, what? What was that? What did you just say? You know, no one knows what the heck's going on at all in this whole craziness, right? Uh, but we see this guy in verses 33 and 34, Alexander. He's drawn out of the multitude. I, we get the sense that maybe he's being put forward as sort of a, a representative of the Jews in the city no doubt wanting to disassociate themselves from Paul and the other Christians and their message. But as soon as the rest of the crowd realized he's a Jew, before he even has the opportunity to speak, they just kind of shout him down. They cry out for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Like, we're not letting anybody speak we don't want to. We don't really care about the Jews in the city. Uh, so, you know, let's just shout over him. This guy's not going to have an opportunity to talk. We, we already know the Jews are, 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 are monotheistic. They only believe in one God. We're all about all of our gods. So we don't really care to hear what he has to say. But this leads to this city clerk who uh, really was more like the mayor of Ephesus in his position, uh, quieting down, seeking to reason with the crowd that had gotten completely out of hand. 
Not only did the city clerk do a great job of reasoning with the mob, pointing out some facts to uh, calm the crowd down and get them to think reasonably, he clearly must have done some investigating before this. He, he must have talked to Paul's two companions and asked them some questions. He must have talked to Demetrius and the other craftsmen to see why they had gathered in this theater. And the city clerk came to this conclusion that Gaius and Aristarchus, they hadn't messed with their temple, hadn't stolen any idols. They hadn't blasphemed. They hadn't spoken against Diana either. In other words, they hadn't done or said anything wrong, shouldn't have been brought here by the crowd at all. He also made it clear that the only unlawful and illegal thing that was happening was this mob gathering and all the chaos and confusion that they had caused by their actions. He points out that Demetrius and the fellow craftsmen of his were the ones who instigated all of this, that if they had any real accusations, they could bring it before the Roman proconsuls. They could do things in a lawful and orderly way made it clear that the uproar was actually putting them all in danger in the eyes of the Roman Empire, who would not look favorably on what had just happened and could bring some serious repercussions against them and the standing that Ephesus had within the Roman Empire as a, as a free city. And after saying all that, he dismissed the assembly and told them all to go home. I like what John Stott said about this situation. He wrote, Paul's, uh, I'm sorry, Luke's purpose in recounting this incident was clearly apologetic or political. He wanted to show that Rome had no case against Christianity in general or Paul in particular. In Corinth, the proconsul Gallio had refused even to hear the Jews' charge. In Ephesus, the town clerk implied that the opposition was purely emotional and that the Christians, being innocent, had nothing to fear from, duty, uh, from duly constituted legal processes. Thus, the impartiality of Gallio, the friendship of Asiarchs, and the cool reasonableness of the city clerk combined to give the gospel freedom to continue on its victorious course. You know, in ways that only God could work, he used even this heavy opposition to bring about a win for the believers so that they continue preaching uh, Jesus openly and freely in Ephesus. And then finally, verse 1 of chapter 20, it says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. And with that, Paul's three years of ministry in Ephesus had finished. Finished with him calling the disciples to himself, wanting to see them all wanting to embrace them all before heading off to start making his way toward Macedonia. And it just reminds me as we see how Paul responded that, you know, the things that happened in Ephesus, they didn't jade Paul. They didn't make him bitter or closed off to people. No, his heart stayed wide open to others, both believers and unbelievers. I want to close with a quote by Warren Wiersbe. In closing out this chapter, he wrote, Ephesus is gone, and so is the worldwide worship of Diana of the Ephesians. The city and the temple are gone, and the silversmith's guild is gone. Ephesus is a place visited primarily by archaeologists and people on Holy Land tours. 
Yet the gospel of God's grace and the church of Jesus Christ are still here. We have four inspired letters that were sent to the saints in Ephesus. Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. The name of Paul is honored, but the name of Demetrius is forgotten. Were it not for Paul, he says, we would not have met Demetrius in the first place. He goes on to say, the church ministers by persuasion, not propaganda. We share God's truth, not man's religious lies. Our motive is love, not anger, and the glory of God, not the praise of men. This is why the church goes on, and we must keep it so. I just really felt like that was a great, great way to end out the chapter. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. You know, as we've seen over these past few studies in chapter 19, God used Paul's time of ministry in Ephesus in some powerful ways. And God, all the glory, God got all the glory in all of it as he worked through a guy who just wanted to make much of Jesus with his entire life. You know, there's so much for us to learn, to take to heart, to be challenged and encouraged by, to be equipped and empowered with and to seek to apply to our lives as we consider all that we've looked at throughout this chapter you know, I, I, again, as I said earlier, if, if we've lost some hope, if we've lost some perspective, if we've lost some passion as disciples of Jesus Christ today, may we bring those things back to the Lord this morning and ask the Lord to touch and to reignite and to restore hope and to realign our perspective. God doesn't want us to waste time. Too much time is lost and wasted. When our hope is in the wrong thing, when our perspective is just off, when our passion is just lifeless, and then we get to a point in our lives where God starts to point these things out to us. Man, Lord, like, where's my hope gone? Where's, where's my passion gone? Like, where's my perspective at? It's, it's just off. Like, everything's just a bit off. And then we look back and we go, man, like, how much different could, could, could my life have been? This last year, these last few years, these last 10 years, whatever that looks like for each one of us. But it doesn't have to be that way. When passion has been diminished, we have a God who loves to bring revival. When our hopes have been dashed, we have a God who we can be confident in. His word that is trustworthy and sure and, and will never fail us. When our perspective just begins to get out of alignment, even just a little bit. We have a God who's going, look to me. Look to Jesus. You, you, we got this race of faith that we've each been put on. Keep looking to Jesus. If our eyes are focused on Jesus Christ, if our eyes are focused on the things of his kingdom, on the things of eternity... We'll start to find ourselves with the right perspective, 
with the right priorities. But those things won't happen if our eyes are on lesser things, on other things than Jesus alone. So this morning, may Jesus reignite our hope. May he realign our perspective. May he reignite our passion this morning for him and the things that he is about, which I need to remind us again is people. It's people. Jesus didn't come to save the trees. He didn't come to redeem the rocks. He didn't come to clean up the ocean. Not that that's bad. Those are good things. Let's not pull, we've been called to be stewards of what God's given us. He came to save people. He came to be around people. He came to give his life for people. All of his time was spent around people who were not like him. Who said dumb things and did dumb things. And yet he loved them. He was patient with them and he was gracious He didn't give up on people. It just reminds us today what our focus is to be on. Jesus and others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Because I want to pick and choose. I want to pick and choose who I love, how I love. Jesus gives the example of the Samaritan. As the priest and the Levite go around the guy who had been left for dead. The people who should have done the right thing and taken care of the man who was wounded. Jesus lifts up the last person that any Jew would ever think, the Samaritan. And he puts him in the right light because he's the one that went and loved and sacrificed and cared for the wounded man. There's wounded people all around us. Sometimes it takes some time to really look deeper and see how wounded people are because it's not outward wounds that we can easily just assess and address. It's inner, emotional, and spiritual and relational wounds. And it takes time. It takes being a friend. It takes seeing people as a neighbor, giving them value. But that time, that effort... That sacrifice is worth it because that's what Jesus has called us to as his people. Would we not bypass those truths this morning? Would we grab a hold of those things and pray through them for our own lives personally? Lord, how are you wanting to change me? How are you wanting to work in my life and then through my life, Lord? That each one of us would sort of mentally draw a circle around ourselves and say, Lord, I pray for a revival. Let's start here. Start here. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Just a man like us, a nature just like us. A sinner saved by grace just like us. whose life was all about Jesus. Lord, how you used him. 
Lord, how you use these other believers there in the city of Ephesus. Lord, how you were transforming a city through individual lives. God, that we long to see that happen here. Lord, we long to see transformation in our families, with our friends, Lord, with our neighbors, in our workplace, all around here. But God, it's not going to happen through reformation, Lord, only through inner spiritual transformation as people find life and light and hope in Jesus Christ. Lord God, we've drawn our circles this morning. God, you know where our hope is. Lord, you know where our perspective is. Lord, you know where our passion is this morning. God, would you start here, start with us. Lord, restore hope. Lord, realign our perspective. Lord, reignite our passion. Lord, fan into a flame a greater love and passion for Jesus Christ and for others. Lord God, we need you. Lord, we have our own wounds. Lord, we have our own struggles our own discouragements, our own fears. And God, we long for you to move in those areas, Lord, for some today, God, that have come and, and they're, they're, they know, Lord, there's some, there's some idols in their own heart, God, that need to be cast down. Sin that's been allowed into their lives, Lord, that has to be repented of, Lord. God, would you empower them, Lord, to make those choices and to stand strong in the grace of Jesus Christ, to overcome, Lord, temptation and sin, the deceptiveness of idolatry. And God, would you lead us in your love towards those around us, Lord? Would we see people the way that you do, Lord? Would we value them the way that you do? Lord, know how to build bridges instead of walls so that the gospel can sound forth from our lives, both with our words and with our deeds to those around us. That those who are in bondage to the enemy, Lord, they would, God, be brought into your marvelous light. Lord, experience your salvation, your justification, your redemption. God, revive us today. And God, would these things, Lord, be things that stay with us this week. Lord, would we pray through them? Lord, would we apply them to our lives by faith, by grace, by the power of your Spirit? Lord, lead us in these days. And Lord, as we sing these songs of praise, God, would we remember, Lord, how you've saved us. Lord, how you've redeemed us. Lord, as redeemed people, 
bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, would we sing your praise, Lord, and not hold back. Would we worship you, Lord, as you deserve. Lord, we love you. Help us, Lord, as we leave this place to run the race looking to Jesus and making much of Jesus with our lives. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.